This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlatan. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a great show for you today on episode number 529 with Henry Gifford, the author of Buildings Don't Lie. And looking forward to a great conversation with Henry. It was quite a project finishing this book up in the last couple of weeks. Uh, A really good book. Looking forward to talking about it. Before we get started, though, let's uh, thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations to Sue Valenti, Andover, Massachusetts, who is first to identify Holly Bailey as IAQ's first female president. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, January 11, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Name the building scientist who stated that, quote, performance can only be defined when we know the limiting condition, i.e. the failure. Only then can we measure the actual performance as a distance to the failure criterion, unquote. Back to you, Joe. Thanks, Cliff. Okay, today's guest is Henry Gifford. He's got over 25 years experience making buildings more energy efficient, comfortable, and durable for his customers. He uses common sense approaches. He's worked on all kinds of buildings, but apartment houses are his favorite. Henry has worked on and designed over 40 energy-efficient buildings and houses. He is also a well-known speaker, an expert on building science, and using real measurements, not just estimates. Uh, Henry's been working on this book, Buildings Don't Lie, for about 11 years now. It's over 500 pages, and I've got to tell you, um, it's fantastic. I mean, the the photos are unbelievable. I don't know how he did it for the price he did, but let's get Henry on the line. Hello, Henry. Hello, Joe. Why why did you write this book, Henry? Because in the buildings industry, there is a huge information vacuum. People hear advice from experts for a specific situation, but then when the conditions are a little different, the climate is different, different time of year, different type of building, it's hard to know if that advice should be applied to a different situation. So I wrote a book big enough to give people all the underlying science that's necessary for people to make their own decisions and fairly quickly develop their own expertise and understand what works when and why and what doesn't work when and why. And I'm really happy I did it. A lot of people are happy with it now. But Henry, you know, that, that helps me better understand uh, the, uh, the, way you, the way you organize the book. So let's put up the table of contents here. We can go down through that. There's uh, a copy of the cover. But um, it, you started with heat basic science, then heat applied science, then air basic science, air applied science, water basic science, water applied science, light, fire, pest. And then you went into some specific issues like elevators, building enclosures, or air quality, heating, and I just love the way you line it up. 
and the applied science sections are phenomenal. Uh, you've got a lot of nice pieces in there where people can, you know, take a look at the photograph. I think we've got one up here. It's an example of a photograph like the one we have up on the screen right now. Henry, I know you're not on the uh, computer, but it's two windows with uh, water damage. They're, they're on an old, uh, looks like an old, maybe up in New York City with an ornate kind of um, uh, canopy above them here. And there's a bunch of efflorescence around these windows. And it was a quiz. I don't know if you remember that photo. I know it's probably tough to remember, but... Um, I want listeners to take a look at these windows and see if they can figure out what the most likely cause of all that efflorescence around the top of those windows is. Uh, Henry, do you remember this one by any chance? I'm not sure which one you mean, but we could tell the readers, any, any of them who don't know, efflorescence is salts accumulating on the surface of a wall and the mechanism is as follows. Water gets into the wall somehow from somewhere. And then as the liquid water moves through the wall, it dissolves salts, uh, table salt or something similar, out of the material. And then the water evaporates at the surface, leaving behind the salts. Uh, if you boil some water in a pot and boil it dry, you'll see a little bit of salt left from whatever minerals were in your water. Similar here. And efflorescence is a very clear indication of where water has been evaporating out of a wall. And it can, of course, give clues as to where water is entering a wall. Somewhere nearby, probably above. And in this case, it was that the uh, the, the top of the wall, the, the window above the, or the, um, trying to figure out what the term I should use, but there's a, a shelf above the wall, above the window that's tilted back toward the window in this case. It's, uh, I, yes, I, yes, yes. So that's, I think this is the photo where, I'd say this design should be called a second chance design <laughs> because if if the water does not get in at the first window, it runs down past the window along the wall and hits another window below without ever having a chance to drip off the building. So the water is given two chances to get in. Yes, so the, the shelf above the window, the, Lentil, you could call it, or the the return, you could call it. It needs to have a uh, a part that's lower than other parts, so the water will not move uphill and back in toward the window. So that can be accomplished by leaving a little overhang, or by cutting a groove into a flat surface. Groove should be about three eighths of an inch high and three-eighths wide as a minimum and that's called uh, drip edge the part that's formed after you put that cut is called the drip edge and if you walk up to a masonry windowsill and put your hand underneath the outer edge and you feel if there's a groove there somebody put in a good windowsill or if it's above you of course you can just look up and see it in this case, not only is that surface not horizontal, it's pitched back toward the building, which is a nightmare. Water will stick. And water clings because it's of its magnetic nature, and it will cling to that surface, run down right onto the window. So the connection between that window and the wall needs to be super impossibly perfect to work <laughs> when it's new. And when it gets old, when it gets three years old or five years old, somebody will say, wow, this is getting old, this connection. That's why it leaks. But if you only had 10% as much water getting to that connection, the leak wouldn't cause a problem, wouldn't, would not cause mold, would not, would not cause damage, What little bit leaks. Well, sometimes in water leak conversations, we point to something on the drawing, we'll say, 
This will stop 90% of the water. This will stop another 90%. This will stop another 90%. And <laughs> how much might get to the materials that are vulnerable to water damage? Well, really, really little. And one more uh, 90% reduction, excuse me, this will stop 90%, this will stop 90%. Each, if each layer lets 10% through, you've got very little water at the end. And this window design, this wall design, is horrible because it greatly increases the amount of water wetting that connection. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about drying as well because I think you did a really nice job explaining also that it's not wetting walls that matters, but how they dry. But before we do, I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about you know where walls are most likely to get wet and why. Well, if rain only falls perfectly straight down, walls would not get wet. They get wet because rain is blown sideways or partly sideways by the wind, and so they get wet. So it's on the windy side and where the wind is circling around on the other side, and since the wind varies and it's too complicated to model, we can't model it and we just assume all the walls will see some rain. Now this problem is much worse above two stories. So a lot of things that work on a one or two story building do not work on a three story building. Uh, one of the reasons is that the wind is exponentially slower, closer to the ground. And another reason is that roof overhangs, the eaves, protect the wall from rain they protect it very well, high up right under the eaves, and not as well lower down. And you could make the eaves just about it sticking out really, really far, as far as you think is not ridiculous. And you'll only cover about two, two stories of height. You'll only protect about two stories of height that way. There's a photo there of a house in Seattle with, with a, it's only one story and it has a particularly wide overhang. It's like, if you're not from that area, you think, look, why did they, wow, that's like so wide. Why did they do that? We wouldn't do that anywhere else. Well, uh, conditions are worse in Seattle. So the walls get wetter higher up, and they get wetter if you don't have an overhang or if you're further down below the overhang. And I guess corners. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about the corners of, you know, whether they're residential or commercial. I guess it doesn't matter that much doesn't matter. The science is the same and the basic science is the same in any kind of building and the applications are a little different for different types of buildings. But if you're just building one story buildings, of course, you can get away with water related uh, things that you would not get away with in a taller building. And it's not a matter of being cheap and cutting corners. Why spend money protecting against something that's not a problem? Put your money elsewhere. So, yes, corners get more wetting than the face of the wall in between the corners. This is because at the corners, there's little curly swirls of air when the wind goes around the corners, and they throw water out centrifugally from themselves, and the little tornadoes there and they can increase the wetting right in that area. And then during the winter, the amount of heat leaving through the flat part of the wall, not at the corner, as well you can calculate from the R value and the indoor and outdoor temperature and punch in a few numbers, and you can roughly estimate the surface temperature there. It's going to be only a little bit above outdoor temperature but as the water dries the water absorbs a tremendous amount of heat to change of phase from liquid to gas the same way when you put rubbing alcohol on your skin when you go to the doctor well that feels cold because it's evaporating well the water evaporating there is cooling the wall and the more insulation we add the less heat available so it's a problem for drying and now at the corners 
there's more surface area, outdoor surface area, and less indoor surface area. If you drill the hole right at per, right perpendicular to the wall, right at the corner, well, you're not going to get to the indoors. You're going to get to the area right behind the other outdoor wall. It's colder there. So that area gets more wetting and less drying. So sometimes you see a house with stones on the corners and shingles on the field in between. Guess why? Somebody was thinking, hey, the other house we built had the shingles or the siding was rotting on the corners. And, you know, you, you've got a, like a borderline kind of a design there. And beefing it up at the corners can work. Hmm. You know, the other issue, I, it, corners are harder to insulate um, as well. I, I, I guess that, uh, how does that affect wetting and drying? I, I didn't think of that, but if you do a lousy job of insulating the corner, you will make it more durable. Your money won't be as durable because you'll be paying more to the utility company. But yeah, we can make all buildings durable and we can solve all water problems by simply removing all the insulation. Then the buildings would have, oh, in the summer, one side of the wall would be warm and the other side of the wall would be warm. Warm tends to be dry, no problem with durability. In the winter, a wall with no insulation has one side warm and the other side warm. Warmer is drier. We solve the durability problems by removing all the insulation. Well, of course, this is a ridiculous idea uh, in practice, but it illustrates the problem. It's a, a good theorizing the extreme thinking experiment, thought experiment to say, hey, yeah, I get it now. More insulation makes one side of the wall more cold, depending on which season you're talking about, winter or summer, depends which side. So when you insulate a wall, you're making one side of it colder. And you can't know which side is going to be cold unless you look at a calendar. So basically, you're putting both sides of the wall at peril of being cold and getting water damage because the cold means it could be cold enough to cause condensation right out of the air. And it also means that when the wall gets wet from rain or a leak or anything else, there's less heat available for drying. And then it's fair to say that a super insulated building can be super problematic. Lots of people are doing really, really good, really durable, really well insulated buildings. Look at what the passive house people are doing. Most of that works really well, but they combine it with an air barrier. And the warm, humid air on one side of the wall has an infinite amount of water vapor which can condense onto the cold side if it leaks through. If the air barrier prevents that leakage, then the wall is going to be much more durable and the air is going to be much healthier because you don't have the mold there. Many buildings have mold inside the wall on the back side of the gypsum board and nobody can find it without tearing the walls open. Henry, In let me... My book... In my book, jump forward yeah. to uh, a section in the book where you, you, you talk kind of about the history of buildings. John, I think you put the three, uh, let's go down a little more, down, 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 where you put the three types of buildings, um, the ones with, no, there we go, let's put that up. The stage one, stage two, and stage three building, it, it's kind of what you were just talking about, Henry, so let's, let's jump to that and um, maybe explain a little more what you mean by stage one, stage two, and stage three buildings. And uh, these kind of relate to historical practices. Is that correct? Well, yes. I, I summarized the whole history of all the buildings anybody ever built in the world by putting them into three categories. <laughs> of course, this is a wild and broad sweeping generalization with all the hazards of broad sweeping generalizations. But in this case, it's very educational and pretty accurate. Stage one, no barrier to heat, no barrier 
to air. Stage two, barrier to heat, but no barrier to air. Stage three, barrier to heat and barrier to air. And so just go ahead and the, the photo of stage two rot from your book um, that I believe is from a stage one building. No, I think it was a stage two building, but the insulation was removed. There was a flood. Gotcha. Uh, that's, there was a, a hurricane and there was a flood. And so in that building, they removed the gypsum board on the inside, the indoor side of the wall up a few feet off the floor. And they took away the insulation and that gave me the opportunity to take a photo of the plywood, I think it was on the outside, the sheathing on the outside of the studs was rotted in one place and not rotted anywhere else. And that right one on place window. was it that say again? This is right under a window. Correct. It's right under a window, which could lead a person to believe, hey, water leaked in at the windowsill. But you don't see vertical streaks, and it's only on one side under the window, and it's a sort of a round, rotted area. Mm -hmm. And so I think I put that photo with the quiz. Hey, what's going on here? Near the round, rotted area is a electrical cable that used to go to an electrical box. Oh, yeah. So what apparently happened is that warm, humid air leaked from indoors in the winter. Warm, humid air leaked from indoors through the electric box, through the insulation, and touched the cold exterior sheathing, the indoor side of it. And this happened enough hours per year to rot the sheathing there. I saw a building in Massachusetts in Cape Cod where you walk around the outside and you can see the building rotted every eight or 10 feet, uh, 18 inch off the floor or so. Wherever you see an electric box on the inside, the wall out And this is only one rotted spot. Hmm. But if that wall had no insulation, then that exterior sheathing would have been warmer because the heat would be jumping through the wall and warming it. So without the insulation, it would have been a stage one building, no insulation, no air barrier, and the air would have leaked from the warm side indoors to the other side, which would be still kind of warm and probably above dew point temperature and not condensed water and not rotted. And so this is, I believe, when it was occupied before it got torn up, it was stage two, it had the insulation, and the insulation caused the exterior sheathing to be colder and therefore more, more vulnerable to rot. Yes. I, so that is, and, and the book is full of great illustrations like this, and you also have below that a diagram that kind of shows, you know, where the air came through uh, the electrical outlet and how it caused the wetting on the exterior sheathing. Now, let's talk about this on the inside of the exterior sheathing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about a stage three building, which is, I think, where many builders would like to be today, but I'm not sure whether you think they are. Well, if you ask some people, they say we're doing really well. Well, look in their Rolodex and you see all the brightest bulbs in the industry and the people who are pushing the limits. And then if you ask other people, they look at your cross-eyed. What do you mean air barrier? They never heard of it hardly. Mm -hmm. So I was in Home Depot last month and I wanted to buy some tile backer board. That's uh, basically a mixture of fiberglass mesh and sidewalk cement. And I was buying it to put up behind tile in a bathroom. And behind the tile backboard, I was going to put a plastic sheet. So the tiles stop 90% of the water, and then the tile backboard stops another 90%, and it's not 
mold food, it's cement and fiberglass. And then the plastic sheet behind that stops another 90%. None of these things are perfect, but I've got three layers of protection. And property managers have told me, yeah, if you don't put up that plastic behind the tile backer board, two years later, there's that mold smell in the bathroom from the studs rotting just a little bit. And no matter how much you scrub that bathroom, when you're trying to rent that apartment, it still has that nasty moldy smell in the bathroom. So I'm in Home Depot and it's hard to lift one sheet by yourself without breaking it. So I asked the guy, a couple guys loading boards next to me, hey, do me a favor, put one sheet here. And then I helped them with theirs and they're buying green gypsum board, piles mm -hmm. and piles of it. So I asked them, well, what are you doing with this green gypsum board? And they say, oh, we're putting it up behind the tiles in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And I looked at them cross-eyed. I'm like, well, you know, the instructions from U.S. Gypsum Company's website it was a long time ago since I looked at it, but they used to have a U.S. Uh, gypsum handbook. They used to publish a book, and it says only use green board on bathroom ceilings, not on the walls. And the guys are like, why not? I said, well, the bottom edge is hitting the tub. The bottom edge gets wet right there. And the water gets absorbed up into the board, and then it can't dry because it's wax-coated paper gypsum board. And on the ceiling, it's good because when you have condensation on the ceiling, it won't soak into the board because the board is wax-coated. Great. But on the walls, where it's, the edge is exposed and touching the tub, and you have holes for the shower body and the, the gooseneck where the shower head comes out, Water gets in, it touches the edge of the board, it soaks in and it can't dry. They're like, yeah, but this is cheaper and this is what we do. And that's what they're budgeted for and that's the way a lot of people do things. So the practice in the industry varies widely and wildly in any geographic area and economic strata. And if you compare one economic strata to another or one geographic area to another, the building practices are very, very different. You know, Henry, I want yes, to come things back. Things are getting better. I want to come back to the uh, stage three buildings for the second half of the show. But before we do, um, Cliff, first, anything that you wanted to add or ask? Joe, um, you know, my comment is that I saw what popular mechanics said about the book. And I, I think that it's, it said it all. And if you give me a minute, I, I just want to read it. Please do. That Henry Gifford is what is known as a building scientist. He studies how buildings work and just important why some don't. He's written and published a remarkable book called Buildings Don't Lie with nearly 600 full-color pages stuffed with information, infrared photography, diagrams, and the best part, quizzes, to test your knowledge. The book is as beautiful as it is exhaustive, covering airflow, water, light, sound, fire pests, ventilation, air quality, and a lot more. You'll learn how fire causes buildings to collapse, the best placement for pipes to avoid freezing, where your house might have thermal bridges that suck outside temperatures in, and the best shade style to let the sun heat your home in the winter, but not in the summer. You'll worry at first that you didn't know all this before, and you'll be grateful that you do now. I couldn't say it any better myself. Um, it's been exhaustive, I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been through, I didn't get through all 600 pages yet, Henry. I had to skip a couple chapters and uh, get to, get to the um, sections in the back, especially the indoor air quality section, but it's just a uh, fantastic. Oh. Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. No, don't skip. Especially, <laughs> especially don't skip chapter one. The heat stuff, you have to know that to understand the rest. You, oh, you no. don't have to know it to understand it, but to really get it in your bones, anytime you can read in sequence, it's better. No, I agree with you. I read chapters one up to uh, pests, and then um, I skimmed nice. pests and, and fire because I wanted to get to indoor air quality before we had this interview, but I agree with you. You've got to read the first. Uh, John, go back to that uh, table of contents, if you would. Because the way it was set up was is, I thought it was brilliant. I, I try and teach building science to people all the time, and it's hard to figure out how you're going to um, 
how, how you're going to build one chapter onto the next. And I love the way you put the basic science for heat, the applied science for heat, and then the same with air, the same with water, the same with light, same with sound, fire, and then pests. Um, but as you can see, I had to, I got through the first, um, I got through water and then I looked, I skimmed light, sound, fire. I'm going to go back and read those in more detail and pest because I wanted to get to that building enclosures section as well before this interview, Henry. And um, when we come back from our break here, I want to go back into that building enclosure section with you. So we're going to stop for a moment here and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds with Henry Gifford, the author of Buildings Don't Lie. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Okay, we're back with Henry Gifford for the second half. And, and Henry, before we go into the perfect wall, I want to point out a couple quick, uh, what I thought were really good tidbits for listeners. Um, The first one is on, uh, we already talked about drip edges, but there's also a a flashing diagram or several of them in your book. Um, There you go, John. This this particular flashing diagram where you show how step flashing should go on a building. And um, it's got more than just these four photos that I'm showing right now, but um, you go from the very start of putting step flashing. It looks like we've got a a roof intersection with a dormer here, and um, you show the step flashing. One question I had, I didn't notice anywhere in the book anything on kick-out flashing. Did I miss that? No, I did not mention it. Okay. Um, Second thing. Go ahead. (laughs) I uh, did not want to give people a whole, try and give a whole complete description of how to do a roof, uh, partly because I'm not an expert in it enough, but the step flashing is something more visible and it's, you see more mistakes. I've got a few photos of screw ups and kind of funny and sad photos of people trying to fix it when it's too late. So I was able to show the problem and the solution in adjacent pages. So I thought that would, have people learning better and of course how how do you like the photo of the person with the raincoat tucked in the pants and the pants tucked in the boots and then the other photo with them shingled properly i think you did that really well and in a couple places in the book uh you used models you know people to show how you know we dress oftentimes anyway um as as you would put on flashing, essentially, you know, you, you put your boots on, you put your pants over your boots, you put your shirt in your pants, but then you put your raincoat down over your over your pants, and uh, I thought it was uh, really well done, uh, and and it you know it adds a little Thank bit you. of lightheartedness. Yep. Now the other thing I wanted to mention um, is, and and this is a common issue, although I, I do think kick out flashing is a common issue that people. Um, run into where it's missing and it should be there and it doesn't direct water away from like the top of doors and and, and corners. But the other thing is um, you talk a little bit about weep holes 
and, and I was wondering if you could give people a couple tips on, on uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are indoor air quality people. They go out and they look at buildings and they're uh, trying to find out why there are uh, moisture problems. And, and sometimes we'll find there are no weep holes or they're maybe in the wrong place. I wonder if you could give a couple tips on that. Well, weep holes are holes near the bottom of a assembly, typically a wall, sometimes a window, which are intended to let liquid water drain out, out to the outdoor surface, and maybe with a kick-out flashing or something away from the surface and drip out into open air. I see a lot of mistakes with weep holes. They're mounted too high. So somebody has a brick wall or a stone wall, and as is smart, the designer expected some water to leak through the stones or the bricks or through the joints in the stones and the bricks and the joints in the bricks. And the water that gets inside the wall runs down, and then there's a flashing through the wall or through most of the wall to bring the water out and to make space on top of the flashing for the water to get out, you need a hole. It's going to take a long time to get out if it has to soak through the bottom piece of mortar on that wall, and by which time it might go through joints in the flashing or uh, keep the wall wetter and wetter longer and wet something inside. So the holes should be just above the flashing, just on top of the flashing, not up. And I was seeing, I saw one time some guys were repairing a wall. They took down the bricks because there was water getting inside the building. And as they were putting it back, they're putting the weep holes too high up, up above the flashing. First, they put a bed of mortar on top of the flashing and they were putting bricks on the mortar and they were putting these little plastic tubes between every two bricks to let the water out. But these tubes are on top of the mortar, just a half inch or so, three-eighths inch or so of mortar, but there's nothing going to make the water climb up that three-eighths of an inch to get into those tubes. So I pointed out to the building manager who was standing next to me, I said, hey, look, the water's not going to jump up. You have to take the trouble to put a, a gap in the bed of mortar and put that plastic tube down, touching the flashing. So the water does not have to go up into that tube. And he said, oh, yeah, okay. And he told the guys, and they did it. And I, of course, got the two photos, the way it was being done properly and the way it was being done before that wrong. And I was happy to be very lucky to be right there right then when they were doing that. And I got the two photos, the right way and the wrong way. John, let's go to the photos. Um there's a wall with efflorescence on it, uh, that one right there. Okay, so, Henry, we've got a wall. It looks like a wall below a, um, oh, it could be a, a road or something like that. And you've got efflorescence in it, kind of in a wave-like pattern here. And I thought this was yep. a illustration of how to track down the source of moisture issues. I don't know if you remember this one, but... I remember the one I stood on the highway. I was actually in the traffic lane on the highway. It was rush hour, so <laughs> but I was that that highway is known as the world's longest parking lot. So in rush hour it's it's okay. I stood out there and I took that picture. Well maybe you could the top of the wall showing. The the top of the wall has a stone coping. The top the top surface of the wall is a flat, big heavy stone, looks like granite or some forever some stone that'll last forever. And then the stones are all about six or eight feet long each. And there's joints in the stones where some water comes in between the stones and runs down and wets the brick wall internally from the top. Then the water moves through the brick wall and evaporates at the surface, leaving a white line of efflorescence at the furthest point down into the wall that the water got and that line is shaped like a bunch of W's in a row because the wall got more wet at those joints 
in the stone top to cope in. So below each joint is the lower part, and then the white line goes higher up in between the joints where very little water got in the wall. And so the efflorescence there is showing evidence of where the wall got wet, more wet, and where it got less wet. Great graphic, um, excellent photo, and it really helps people visualize how to track down these moisture issues. Now, the other thing, you mentioned efflorescence, and I want to touch on, I know we're going to run a little short on time, but I want to touch on a topic that I wasn't that familiar with, but um, you kind of opened my eyes in the book on subfluorescence. And, John, I think it might be the next photo. Yeah. Tell people a little bit about what subfluorescence is. And I have the photo in the book from, I think there's two of them here, Henry. One was um, where the basement, they had added heating to the basement. And they hadn't had this subfluorescence, as I understand it, until they added the heating to the basement. I thought that really illustrated well what subfluorescence is. Subfluorescence is the mechanism whereby liquid water is absorbed from the soil up into the bottom of a wall and then the water evaporates at the surface of the wall leaving behind salts inside the pores, the tiny holes in the wall, typically masonry, brick. So when the pores become completely filled with these salts, uh, pressure is exerted on the masonry and it breaks the masonry. Masonry is strong in compression, weak in tension, so it, it breaks. The exact mechanism is actually not well understood or it's debated. Is it actual expansion of the salts or is it vapor pressure, osmotic pressure? But if you think of it as the salts accumulate to the point where they expand and break the masonry, that uh, thinking of how the mechanism works is not going to mislead you into making wrong decisions or wrong understandings of anything. So you can look at the surface of the wall and you see it eaten away. Sometimes you see the bricks eaten away and the mortar is in great shape. Sometimes you see the mortar eaten away and the bricks are in great shape. Of course, mortar is cheaper to fix than bricks, so you, uh, you hope that the mortar gets eaten away instead of the bricks. The solution is, with a new building, put a capillary break. That is a break to capillary movement of water. That is the suction, like if you put a towel hanging over into the bathtub and it sucks up the water, that's capillary movement. So. If you're building a new building, smear a layer of tar on top of the foundation, or you can use a plastic sheet product. There's lots of products on the market now. And then you build your wall up from there, and you're good. Retrofitting an old wall is very difficult. You can cut out, cut out a mortar joint and go like a third of the way into the wall with a piece of sheet metal, then do the other side, higher or lower, and you've way reduced the problem enough to where the building's not going to be falling down anymore. But brick walls are completely destroyed by this mechanism, sometimes structural brick walls, and it's really scary. But in the photo you're talking about, there's a bunch of little chips of broken brick lying on the floor in front of the wall, indicating that this is a rapidly progressing failure this is a 100-year-old building, and obviously that pile of debris in front of the wall was not there for 100 years. The whole floor has been swept. It's clean except for there. So it shows that this is a very recent damage mechanism, and apparently this mechanism was not functioning for the first 99 or so years of the building's life because the basement was not dried by heating it or dried by putting an air conditioner in there. So now that it's been heated, the air is drier, uh, lower relative humidity and lower absolute humidity. Uh, well, maybe lower absolute humidity, but definitely lower relative humidity. 
So there's much more drying now, and that caused this mechanism to either start or become bad enough to cause damage. Uh, one solution, of course, is to take away the heat. If you're not using the basement, why heat it? Maybe there's a leaky air duct that did not leak before. Maybe they're unintentionally heating the basement. But if nobody needs to heat the basement, you can take the heat away, and that will help. Uh, another way to approach it is to trowel on a layer of mortar or plaster. We you could, There's a product called Structolite. U.S. Gypsum makes it. It's a sort of a cross between cement and plaster. It's really inexpensive. You could trowel that on, and it's a sacrificial coating. So you say you put a half-inch thick coating. Well, now the evaporation is not happening at the surface of the bricks. It's happening at the surface of the sacrificial coating. The damage occurs a half inch away from the brick. Wonderful. So now there's cheap plaster, or if it's outdoors, you put real cement, real mortar, put lots of lime in it, make it soft. You have the damage moved now a half inch away from your wall. Guess what? 20 years from now, you're going to have to put it back because it's going to fall off. Maybe it's 15 years, maybe it's 30 years. But however many years it takes for that sacrificial coating to be destroyed, you renew it after many years. So when you place the, the building onto your children, tell them, look, look, you have to do this in 20 years. <laughs> and that's something that the old timers knew in, um, you know, in Europe for, for many, many years now. Yes. In Europe, they call subfluorescence, they call it rising damp. And... It's a huge problem over there because their standard cheapo building is masonry and our standard cheapo building is wood. We have wood more than them and it's habits and it's economics and they just happen to build with masonry over there. And the older buildings, a lot of the buildings built within our lifetimes, they're masonry. And until fairly recent times, they did not put capillary breaks and maybe they renovated a 100-year-old building or a 500-year-old building. They have them over there, and there's no capillary break, and this is a huge problem. And I show some photos from Europe where the buildings are terribly damaged. One from New Hampshire I show, and you can see a little, not little, like an inch-long chip of brick fell off the wall on that building in New Hampshire. It's like, look at this. There's real damage happening in front of your eyes. So, yes, the sacrificial coating solution is commonly known in Europe. They do it there. Whether or not they know why it works, I don't know. Surely some people do. Maybe some people don't, but it works. Let's, uh, Henry, I want to move on a little to the, you, you did a short, we have a, a good segment of listeners that are from the water damage restoration industry, and but the short section you did on Drying water damaged buildings was really good. I sent it over to Cliff so he could take a look at it. I'm wondering, Cliff, do you, uh, do you want to ask a couple questions on that or point out what uh, Henry has uh, recommended in the water damage drying section? No, I, I agree with him um, that, you know, for as a disaster restoration contractor from time to time, uh, you know, we encounter serious or even catastrophic water damages you know, during the winter time, and you know what he points out pretty eloquently in the book is you have uh, a phenomenal uh, drying source in cold, dry air, and cycling cold, dry air you know into the building will quickly remove it. And I remember when we had our training center, I loved you know doing classes in the winter, and particularly when it was raining. Uh, you know, you'd have students there and, you know, is, is it drier in here? Is it drier outside? And, you know, everyone thinks it's drier in here. Then you can show them that it's actually outside drier when it was raining than, you know, than, than it was indoors, you know, based on your absolute humidity. So uh, I think that he's absolutely right. And I think our industry just gets so hung up on equipment and equipment rentals and, uh, you know, there's all this focus there that, and I think a lot of times natural uh, common sense things end up being overlooked. Henry, anything I, I, I thought it was interesting that you opened up the buildings and during cold weather, but you know, you also want to make sure that you don't get below, I guess, freezing and uh, freeze pipes and so on, but you're bringing in that lower 
relative humidity air from outside and uh, you've got and then you're running it through your air conditioning as i understand it uh maybe you want to expand no, on that through, through the heating system through the heating system i'm sorry well there, there's this field of human endeavor called psychrometrics it's of course the study of how much water vapor air can hold at different temperatures and willis carrier left us the gift of the psychrometric chart but the whole thing can be summarized by two sentences cold air cannot hold much water vapor hot air can hold a lot of water vapor so cold air is necessarily dry in terms of the specific humidity it's also called the absolute humidity so if it's 20 30 40 degrees colder outside than in open each window an inch turn the heat on full blast maybe put some fans and that's going to dry the house much faster than any dehumidifiers you can put because the dew point to which dehumidifiers can draw the air down is limited by not freezing the coil. And if you've got air outdoors that's 30, 40 degrees colder than indoors, well, it's about freezing there, and there's a whole lot of it out there. And if it's 10 or 20 degrees out, that's even better because it's even drier. And I've been on jobs where there was a flood and during construction or something and there's dehumidifiers running, running, running and the hoses are dry. There's not a drop of water coming out of them. A guy I know who builds very well insulated and very airtight apartment houses, not quite passive house level, but really up there. If he finishes a building during the winter, they open the windows and turn the heat on. If he finishes a building during the summer or he's close to finish, a couple months of finished, he needs a restoration contractor to come and dry the building. And he gets people in there to put dehumidifiers and fans. So you, it's a normal thing on his construction sites now. You walk around and there's fans and there's dehumidifiers because that outdoor air is warm and it has much more water vapor in it than winter air has and it's not going to help dry so as soon as he's closed in enough to button up and mostly control air leakage between indoors and out as soon as the windows are in basically he closes all the windows and he puts the humidifiers now new buildings start life wet the paint has water the tile grout has water the tile the, the uh, thin set has water the joint compound on the gypsum board has water. The plumbers spill some water. Uh, everybody spills a little bit. Uh, the electricians are probably the only people who don't bring any water into the building. And all the other trades that I can think of, most of the masons, concrete, outgasses a huge amount of water in the first year or two of its life. Concrete floors, concrete block, concrete basements, even the floor slab. You go in Texas, there's no basements, it's slab on grade. That slab is putting out a huge amount of water into that new building. So buildings start life wet. The two by fours come in a truck, maybe on a rainy day. Maybe it rains in the building before the sheathing goes up and the sheathing's wet. So everything's wet in the beginning. So to avoid mold problems, he dries out those buildings. Now, people have not been doing it. It has not been standard practice. But as buildings are getting better insulated and more airtight, this is becoming more of an issue and more of a problem. And air conditioning systems are getting smaller because LED lights and better windows are reducing the cooling load. And the LED lights and the better windows and the better insulation are reducing the number of hours that the air conditioner needs to run. So in some climates, the air conditioner for a 30-year-old building runs enough hours a year to keep that building dry because the air conditioner dehumidifies as it cools the air. But you build right next door in the same climate, you build a new building with more insulation and LED lights and better windows. There are m many fewer hours a year where that AC will run and that building, the new building, can have mold problems because of it. And Many more new buildings are going to need dehumidifiers than old buildings. 
my understanding too is that the newer um, mechanical systems, air conditioners, actually don't dehumidify as well as they become more efficient. Well, so, some of that, yes, it, it, there's a lot of truth to that. The the SEER ratings, the, the the EER energy efficiency ratio. That's uh, how many BTUs of heat gets removed for one watt of electricity used. And then they put the SEER, which is seasonal, but it's a pretty bad rating because it, I think it looks at how well the air conditioner can cool the house when it's 78 degrees out, which, uh, you know, it's a kind of a way of making the numbers look higher and maybe some government program pushed, oh, we need higher numbers. So here's your numbers, but it's not very realistic, but some equipment is wired so that at the end of a cycle, a cooling cycle, the fan runs for an extra few minutes to dry out the water in the drip pan and on the cooling coil. And this is a disaster in terms of indoor air quality because you're putting that water vapor back in the air. It increases the rated efficiency, however, because you're using the air conditioner as a sort of a swamp cooler, a evaporative cooler like you can use in Arizona just evaporate a lot of water and the change of phase cools the air and you can stand having a little water evaporated to the air in Arizona. So this is a terrible idea and I don't know if it's still common practice, but I, I know it's, it did come in and it did get pushed basically by trying to bump the ratings up. All right, let's um, finish this up, Henry, with a, a quick discussion of the perfect wall. I think, uh, you know, you and I and many others in the building science world are hoping that more people will uh, use that, you know, will we'll, we'll build the perfect wall. Um, John, I think I've got a graphic there that shows the perfect wall. We've got uh, one from your book, Henry, that uh, shows a a wall that's, uh, well, uh, you, I'm sure you can describe the perfect wall here. This one has the, um, looks like XPS on the exterior. Well, the I call it the perfect sequence. And in my book, I credit the great building scientist, Joe Stiebrick, for being the first person I know of to call it the perfect wall. But I call it the perfect sequence because it's not just a, certain collection of materials and because the sequence is also applicable to basements and floor slabs and roofs. But if you have a wall with the XPS on the outdoor side, you should have indoors of that a barrier to liquid water and to air. And then on the indoor side of that, you have the two by fours or two by sixes or whatever is your structure. And then on the indoor side of that, you have the gypsum board. So the big change here is one of the big changes is that the insulation is further toward the outdoor side of the wall. What that accomplishes is that it keeps the indoor side of the wall and the structure close to room temperature. So the structure doesn't expand and contract with changes in outdoor temperature. So a lot of cracking that leads to water leaks is reduced or eliminated. Another thing is that all the thermal mass, the energy, the heating and cooling stored in that wall structure, it takes a long time to change temperature. So that reduces the peak heating and cooling loads and reduces the overall cooling loads. So it's like if you put in your house 10, 55 gallon drums full of water in the middle of your living room, it would be very ugly but it would limit how cold your house could get at night and how hot it could get in the day. And this is sort of some strata in, in Arizona, places where you have very high temperature in the day, very cold temperature in the night. This works effectively enough for people to be doing things, something like this. And I've seen it done in greenhouses where they could grow watermelons in the winter in Montana because they put all this water in there. So the perfect sequence helps that way by keeping the thermal mass indoors of the insulation. Another way it's good is that it avoids the problem of air leaking through the insulation and getting 
to a material that is vulnerable to water damage, such as the sheathing. So the example we talked about earlier, the insulation was between the studs, warm humid air from indoors leaked through the insulation and got to the cold sheathing. Well, if you put the insulation on the outdoor side of the sheathing, the sheathing is warm all winter. So air getting to it from indoors is not going to cause a problem. Air leaking from outdoors to the warm sheathing, well, you're going warmer. That's going to reduce the relative humidity of that air, and it's not a problem. And so the sequence keeps the water-vulnerable parts of the wall protected from being cold and having warm air, warm, humid air hit them. In the summer, that sheathing would be called, say you're in Florida, and it's 95 degrees out and 90% humid, and that air leaks in the indoor direction, gets through the insulation, it could get to the sheathing and rot the sheathing. But between the insulation and the sheathing, I mentioned a barrier to liquid water and a barrier to air. Well, because the barrier to air is located outdoors of the sheathing, it's not penetrated by holes for wires and pipes. The electric box is not there. It's further in where it's not causing a leak in the air barrier. So now the chances of you having a really good air barrier go way up. The expense of putting a really good air barrier goes way down. The ease of inspecting the air barrier before covering it is, well, just stand outside the building and look. It's great. So if you have a really good air barrier there, and the same material could be a barrier to liquid water or an adjacent material could be a barrier to liquid water. In Florida, in the summer, the warm, humid outdoor air goes through the insulation, gets to the cold side of the insulation. It can cause condensation on the cold side of the insulation. But guess what? It's there. Guess what's there is the barrier to liquid water. It can run down, go out a weep pole, and back out of the building. The water-vulnerable components are on the indoor side of the barrier to liquid water and to air, which protects them from this condensation. And this assembly works in the winter, it works in the summer, it works in hot climates, dry climates, humid climates, and cold climates. It works in Canada, it works in Florida. Will it make everything perfect and make sure there's no problems in any buildings forever? No. But it makes the assembly much more forgiving of the inevitable mistakes. Nobody does anything perfectly. Nobody does perfect designs. Nobody does perfect construction. And nobody does perfect maintenance. If you put the perfect assembly, the perfect sequence, the perfect wall, whatever you want to call it, you will have a building that is much, much more forgiving of the inevitable mistakes. And it could be a wall, like you said, a roof or a, a floor. I mean, it's a, a sequence that works anywhere. Yeah, on a roof. Yeah, on a roof, let's move the insulation further to the outdoor side. That can stop the problem with roof decks rotting away. Everybody talks about, should we have uh, open cell foam, closed cell foam? Can we put foam? What if warm humid air gets to that? And, of course, as we insulate attic floors more and more, the attics are getting colder. The more insulation you add on the attic floor, the colder the attic gets, the colder the roof deck gets, and the worse the problem can be. And spray foam is nice, but it's still on the wrong side. So if we insulate on the outdoor side of the roof and then put shingles on top of that, problem solved. And by the way, go put a kid's room up there. Don't you have an empty attic with vents to the outdoors. Make it an indoor space and gain that square footage. Same with a basement wall. Many people have had basements in the Northeast for many, many years. Their parents lived in the house, never had problems. And then they go and they want to put a pool table in the basement and make the walls look nice. So on the indoor side of the basement wall, they had two by fours, maybe wood, maybe metal, and they put gypsum board and they put some fiberglass. Now they made that concrete wall colder. Now that wall is below the dew point temperature of the indoor air many more hours a year. It gets wet from indoor air. It gets wet also from leaks from outside, capillary and liquid from outdoors. And it can't dry now because it's colder now. So all of a sudden you get mold problems. The solution, of course, is to insulate on the exterior side of the basement wall. 
Not so easy when you have bushes. Not so easy when you have a patio and you just built that nice deck. I'm not expecting everybody in the world to go dig up their yard and take away that deck. But when you're doing a new building, go and insulate on the outdoor side. When you have your yard dug up to do something else, go put a couple inches of foam on the outside of the basement wall. It's amazing. I, I have a friend in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, who builds uh, their very energy efficient homes, their net zero homes. And uh, essentially, he puts a one inch layer of uh, foam on the outside. And then you know, he's got two by sixes. He puts uh, fiberglass in the two by sixes. And it's just uh, amazing how well it works for him. And and for the people that live in the buildings, I've spoken to some of the people that bought his homes and, you know, they're, uh, that's not the only things he does, but that's a big part of solving a lot of the problems that they had in these homes in the past. And uh, they may spend $50 a month on all their utilities. It's just uh, amazing. Now, they, some of them have PV arrays and that helps a bit too, but first thing you've got to do is stop using the energy uh, and, and then worry about maybe producing some more. But anyway, Henry, thank you so much for joining us. I didn't even get a chance to get into uh, apartment buildings and, and most importantly, the heating, ventilation, and cooling sections of the book. I, I, I think you've got some really great information in there, and maybe what we can do is have you come back and uh, talk about that some other time. Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Henry Gifford, thanks so much for joining us this week on IAQ Radio Plus. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add? Nope, you covered it well. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, thanks for, I know it had to be a lot of hard effort put into that book, and uh, I really appreciate it. When I'm done with it, it's going to go to my son, who uh, is a contractor here in Pennsylvania, and uh, I'm sure he will learn quite a bit from it. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Henry Gifford. Buildings don't lie. Uh, of course, to our engineer, John, you got to have faith. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Next Friday at noon, we will have Shelly Miller. Dr. Miller's coming back to join us from the University of Colorado. She's got a couple new papers out. We'll talk about the microbiome, uh, a little bit about some of the work they're doing at HomeChem. And uh, look forward to a great show with uh, Dr. Miller. So we'll be back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.